just under a month ago, actually. Um, I watched Mission Impossible last night, and that's the real Mission Impossible, the way they got these kids out. It's incredible. Um, the effort and the cost, in case you're wondering, um, 10,000 people, 10,000 people. Over 100 divers, many rescue workers, representatives of over 100 government agencies, two, uh, 900 police officers, 2,000 soldiers, 10 police helicopters, 7 police ambulances, more than 700 diving cylinders, oxygen tanks, and they pumped more than a billion litres of water out of the caves. And of course, it cost one person's life, that Thai Navy SEAL. And you might be wondering, was it all worth it? All that effort, all that cost? Well, of course it was, wasn't it? And an indication that it was worth it is that I tried to look up the financial cost of this operation, and I couldn't find it. Now, most of the, you know, most things in, in life nowadays, you, you, you hear about how much it costs in dollars. I, I tried Googling it. No, no one was mentioning how much it costs in dollars because people knew that this was worth it. When, when you look at the 12 boys and their coach, it was worth the cost. It was worth the effort for this rescue operation. It was worth making that rescue the one thing, the only thing that mattered while there was still a very limited amount of time. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 that, um, uh, that we read earlier, it shows us what the Apostle Paul thought was the one thing. What he considered was the only thing that matters while there is still time. The one thing that he was willing to make every effort for, put up with any cost, make any sacrifices for. Now, we'll see what that is and what that looked like for Paul, who wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians. But my prayer is that it won't just stay in the pages of 1 Corinthians. This is God's word writing through Paul. And my prayer is that God will use it to challenge each one of us, if you're a follower of Jesus, to challenge us to the core of what is it for us that's the one thing and whether it motivates us in the same way. Let's pray and then we'll get into it. Father God, we thank you for your word. And we pray that you would make this one thing of 1 Corinthians 9, the thing that drives us, if we're followers of Jesus, if we don't yet know you personally, we pray that even through this, understanding how important this is, that we would be moved to investigate more, that perhaps it would become something true for us as well. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm actually pretty glad we're back to paper because you know, I can actually say paper, outline. Feel free to take notes if that's helpful for you. But um, yeah, so we're going to have extra uh, outlines from now on since we don't have Zach pages. Uh, so let, let's go. Uh, first point, I want to talk about um, the context. Remember last week we started a section that includes this week's passage. Chapters 8, 9, and 10 belong together in 1 Corinthians. Next week we'll look at chapter 10. But if you're here with us last week, you remember chapter 8 raised the issue of food sacrifice to idols. Yeah, food sacrifice to idols and whether that was permissible or not for Christians. Behind the issue, if you were here with us last week, or you can listen online, there were those in the church who insisted that because they're Christians now and they're free and they've got a right to eat whatever they want, not under any food laws, idols aren't real anyway, that they could do whatever they want, whenever they want, eat and drink however they wanted. They were free to do so. They had a right to do so. But we saw that was actually damaging the brothers and sisters around them who were led to do the same but who didn't feel as comfortable doing that, especially because their consciences from an idol-worshipping background made them feel like they were doing something wrong. I remember that was the, the context. And as I said last week, 1 Corinthians 8 is the start of the issue. 1 Corinthians 10 next week, Hazy's going to preach to us, will conclude the whole issue of idols and food and stuff. 
Now, if you look at 1 Corinthians 9, this week's passage seems a little bit out of place. Is, is it a tangent? Is, it, is he off, got off topic now? It doesn't mention anything about food sacrifice idols. It's all about Paul and his philosophy of life and ministry. So what's going on? I reckon if you look closely, though, what you will find is it's not off topic at all. It's actually the principles of 1 Corinthians 8 and 10 applied. Uh, we, hear, we, hear, we have a sandwich. And anytime you see a sandwich, you eat it. No, every time you see a sandwich in the Bible where it's sort of like, you know, two, two pieces of bread and the meat in the middle, 8 and 10 are the pieces of bread. Chapter 9 is the meat in the middle. It's usually the middle bit that's the most important, and it is. Right? So why does Paul, in this chapter that we read earlier, why does he open up with rhetorical questions all about his freedom and his rights? Well, as I said before, it's because that was the issue that it started in chapter 8. Because the Corinthians were insisting on their freedom and their rights, not caring about anyone else. But Paul is saying, look at my life. Look at my priorities. And look how gladly I would set aside any freedoms and rights I have for the sake of others. And for the sake of the one thing that matters more than anything else. Now, we're not going to look at verses 1 to 18 in detail. I actually want to focus on 19 to 23. But let me just give you the key elements of that first part that we're not going to look at in detail. And the key verses are really verse 13. The other thing, by the way, when you go and pick up your paper bulletins from now on is pick up a copy of, if you don't have a paper Bible and you like that, we've got Bibles in the back, the black ones. And if you don't have a Bible at all, you get to keep them. All right, but otherwise give them back. Um, anyway, verse 13 of chapter 9, keep them open. Look what it says. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple? And that those who serve at the altar share in what's offered on the altar. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these rights. Right, what's he talking about? It is right to receive financial support for doing the work that he does as a missionary, evangelist, pastor, apostle. It's what you guys do for me and Dom, right? You support us and our missionaries like Carrie and Heidi in the future and current missionaries so that we can focus on doing those things and not have to also get a job outside of that to support ourselves so we can focus our energies on doing gospel work. And Paul, like other gospel workers, has a right to receive that. That's his whole argument in those verses. But the key is, of course, he says, we didn't use that right. I chose not to use that right. But instead, what did he do to support himself? Well, he worked a blue-collar job. Right? He worked essentially a tradies job, which for him was to make tents in the day, worked with his hands so that he could do ministry free of charge. Now, why did he do that? Well, the second half of verse 12, look there, verse 12, he says, second half, but we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Now, this is important. We must be careful not to overapply because we, we mustn't think, well, if every gospel worker was as good as Paul, they all ought to all refuse support and right to support. Now, Paul, at different times, uh, was able to receive people's supporting gifts, but he judged that him taking money, particularly in this context from the Corinthians, would hinder the gospel, hinder his ministry. Why would taking money from them for support that he rightly should get hinder? Well, it's because they're in the Roman world, and the Corinthians were especially um, into that sort of uh, structure, is there was a system of patronage. You understand what a system of patronage is in the ancient world and even in, in the Renaissance? There'd be you know, guys like Michelangelo um, as an artist. He, he would earn money by a patron, a wealthy patron, 
would basically sponsor him to paint and to draw and to do stuff. Right? That, that's what happened in the Roman world. You take money, but when you take money from people in the patronage system, you're expected to return favors. You're expected to advance their interests. It's a bit like doing business in parts of Asia, right? In Asian context, you, you get taken out on those work dinners. They're not free, are they? Work trips, they're not free, are they? Okay, there's always expected toing and froing. Now, that's okay in some sense, in some context, but it's a disaster if you're talking about gospel ministry, isn't it? Can you imagine that? By receiving support, that somehow you are now beholden to the people who support you to preach what they want you to preach, to say what they want you to say. Paul says, no way I'm going to do that. I set aside that right so the gospel wouldn't be hindered. And that really you know, gets us into the key aspect of this chapter, as I said before, what is that one thing? For Paul. The one thing for Paul is that the work of the gospel continues. The one thing that matters is that the gospel um, is unhindered. I'll come back to that later on. But I want you to know, um, just before we move on from this section, that you know, when Paul is setting aside his right for financial support, he's actually setting aside two rights behind that, that in some sense are even harder for us to give up. I mean, most of you aren't getting financial support for preaching the gospel. I am, Dom is, most of you aren't. But there are other things that behind that right that actually we all have in common. You see, when Paul says, no, I won't take your money, he's actually setting aside a couple of other rights. Firstly, his right for comfort and ease. His right to be comfortable and have it a little bit easier. See, by supporting himself, Paul had to work harder. We get a picture of that. Look at this uh, screen in 2 Thessalonians where he says, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we wouldn't be a burden to any of you. He had a right to have it a little bit easier. Instead, he chose to give up that right of comfort and ease. Secondly, he gave up prestige and respect. As I said, Paul worked the job of a laborer, not the educated philosophy class, the teacher's class of people. He worked with his hands in in Corinth, in the ancient world, in Greece and Rome. If you were a top teacher with followers, your followers would pay for you and you would never have to work, especially not the work of a laborer. And if you had to work with your hands especially, it shows that you, you were never much of a teacher in the first place, okay? So Paul actually faced some of that criticism, some of that judgment. Gosh, Paul, if you have to be a tent maker, you mustn't be very good at it of a teacher or a preacher. And so he took a big step down in prestige and respect. He had a right to it. He was their apostle. He founded their church. He's preached the gospel in all of the known world. And yet he chose to take a step down. Now, I mentioned those two rights, comfort and respect. Because for us, that's likely to be the stuff that we find hard to give up. I mean, think about the last time that you gave up and sacrificed your happiness, your pleasure, your time, your hobbies, your leisure, for the sake of the gospel. Or we're willing to look foolish, to take a step down in other people's opinion, in status, in prestige, in respect, for the sake of the gospel. It's hard, isn't it? Those rights for so many of us become idols. We really don't want to give them up for the sake of the gospel. Uh, My friend uh, Dominic uh, wasn't a Christian years and years ago, and he was a junior, um, a junior uh, uh, journalist at a radio station. 
in his 20s, just started out. Um, there was a, an older senior uh, and really well-respected radio announcer and journalist called Russell. And uh, Russell was a Christian, Dominic isn't. Um, and Russell invite, invited Dominic to come with him to church to, to investigate Jesus. And Dominic was happy to do that. He had a kind of Catholic background. So he said, yeah, why not? Um, so he agreed. I'll come to church with you. Um, except when he says he'll come, he actually, like a flaky 20-year-old, doesn't actually turn up. Um, that happened not one week. It happened two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. And it just happened again and again and again. Um, and, and Russell would never mention anything about, you know, blaming him or anything. Just the next week he'd say, hey, you want to come this week? And Dominic would say, yes, I'll come and not turn up. Finally, Dominic thought, this isn't very good form, even for a 20-year-old. I better come along. I mean, Russell is well-respected. He's you're taking the time to ask me. I should actually go along. So he did go, go along. This was, you know, weeks later of not showing up. And the week that he does turn up, again, like a flaky 20-year-old, he turns up like half an hour late. He walks to the church, and who is out there waiting for him? Russell. And then it tweaked for Dominic. This guy, right, who waited for him that week was waiting for him every single week, even though he didn't show, waiting outside. What a big step down, not only in terms of, you know, his comfort, but also a big step down in terms of, I mean, this guy's well-respected. He's much more senior in the working world. And when Dominic understood that, he began to investigate Jesus more seriously and eventually became a Christian. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about here. Someone who's willing to take a step back, give up his right for comfort and prestige and respect for the sake of the gospel. And that's what Paul does. He would give up anything and everything for the one thing. So we're going to turn to the key verses now and see how that works out. So point number two and verses 19 to 23. Let's read those verses again. Verse 19. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. Under the law there means under the law of Moses, okay? What Jews followed. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I'm not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak, to win the weak. I've become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this all for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. Okay, so you see what Paul is giving you a snapshot of his ministry philosophy. Fancy way of saying the way that he serves Jesus and the way that he serves the gospel. Uh, And his ministry philosophy in one word is the word contextualization. You heard of the word contextualization? It's a big mission buzzword. If you go to reach out, you're going to hear stuff like that. It's a really important idea. Contextualization is saying, we're going to build bridges towards the people we're trying to reach. Okay? We're going to step into their context. Because Paul understood, as missionaries today understand, that there are many, many barriers to a person coming to sometimes even hear the good news of Jesus, let alone understand it and accept it. Now, the main barriers are going to be spiritual ones, right? The Bible says it actually takes God to open the hearts of people who are blind spiritually. Now, those main barriers, that's God's work, right? We need to be praying and seeking that God would do that. But there's also other barriers. I mean, an obvious one, when you're trying to reach across cultures is what? Language. If they don't understand your language, you can't reach them. So contextualization says, well, I mean, there's a couple ways you can go about doing it. You can 
force them to learn your language so you can communicate the gospel. Or you can be saying, look, I need to learn your language. I need to also learn your culture. I need to think about what racial and social and other contextual barriers stand in the way. And I want to minimize all of those to go where you are to help you come to understand Jesus. That's what Paul is talking about here. How he applied it, as we see, is especially with regards to the two main groups of people he's trying to reach, the Jews and the non-Jews, right? Or also known as Gentiles, the Jews and the non-Jews. So you see here, Paul was a Jew, but he is a Jew who became a Christian, which means that he was no longer under the Jewish law of Moses, especially the food laws, the cleanliness laws, the circumcision laws. But he's saying, when I'm trying to reach Jews, I will gladly still adhere to those laws. All right? The cleanliness laws, the kosher food laws, things that actually mattered to Jews. He made sure that he actually still did them. In fact, he even had one of his companions, his, his missionary partners, Timothy. Timothy's mom was a Jew, his dad wasn't, but he made sure that Timothy was circumcised so that there would be no barrier to Timothy going with him to minister to Jews. Poor Timothy. But you know, this was actually effective contextualization. He didn't have to do it, he chose to do it. But then how about reaching non-Jews, Gentiles? Well, when he reached non-Jews, he would set aside all those Jewish things, right? So he would be happy to eat non-kosher food. Hooray for pork. He would go into their houses. You know, Jews would not go into a Gentile's house, especially to eat with them. He didn't do all the Jewish ceremonial stuff. He had other people he partnered with that were not like Timothy, that didn't get circumcised, who were Gentiles as well. See, to best reach non-Jews, he became like them. You've got to understand that was not easy. Right? Imagine how doing that with the Jews and then doing another thing with the non-Jews pretty much makes both groups unhappy with you in some sense. In fact, it put a huge target on his back, particularly with the Orthodox Jews. As they looked at Paul, they hated him even more because they could see that Paul was willing to sacrifice all of those things to reach non-Jews. Paul was nearly killed for that. And the extent of his sacrifices, you know, verse 19, he says, I became a slave. He calls himself a slave, which itself is a huge thing. Now, as I said, in the Jewish world, the world is divided into Jew and non-Jew. In the Roman world, the world is divided into what? Free and slave. All right? And Paul was not only free, he was by birth a Roman citizen. That's a very, very hard to get sort of thing if you're not born Roman. He was a Jew, but he was Roman citizen and definitely not a slave. But you see, he was willing to give up all the rights and privileges of being a Roman citizen and consider himself a slave, a menial, serving others, degrading kind of position. That was the kind of sacrifice he was willing to give. Why was he willing to do all of that? It's not because he was bowing to pressure. You know, with the Gentiles, he just felt like, oh, I can't fit in unless I do what they do. To the Jews, oh, you know, I feel a bit of peer pressure, so I better be... No, that's what we do, right? So don't, please don't use this as an excuse, right? I'm going to just get drunk on the weekends with my mates because I'm trying to be all things to all people. That's, not, that's called peer pressure. That's what we do. Paul is not trying to please people. Why is he doing it? It's the one thing, right? Verse 22, I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of what? The gospel, the good news, 
that I might share in its blessings. See, Paul is not bending to please people. He only cares about pleasing God and the trust, the trust that God gave him with the good news of Jesus. That's why he does it. And why does the gospel call for such a radical giving up of rights? Why is it that when you make the gospel the one thing, this should naturally follow? I'll tell you why. Let me think about it. what is at the core of the good news of Jesus? Isn't the core of the good news actually the ultimate contextualization? What God, infinite, divine, became a man. What did God sacrifice? His only son for us, dying for us in our place on the cross. You want to talk about contextualization, God building bridges. That's exactly what he does. You want to talk about sacrificing rights and freedoms. That's what Jesus does. God became a slave for our sake so that we might be free. You see, that's why at the heart of the gospel is this contextualization. That's why it flows so naturally. And we've got to be careful not to see that Paul is willing to bend and flex on everything. Okay? Like if you're thinking, hey, to be all things to all people, well, my mate's having a bucks night and they're going to a strip club. I better go with them. Right? That, that's sort of out of the boundaries. Now, how I know that is because the context of these chapters, remember, Paul has said last chapter, and he'll continue next chapter, that Christians are free to eat, but remember the three things I showed you last week. As long as, number one, you're running away from sin. I, I, I doubt becoming all things to all people in a strip club is actually going to help you run away from sin. As long as you don't cause, number two, other Christians to fall into sin or to stumble, go against their conscience. And then number three, hindering evangelism. Paul is not saying, you know, there's no restrictions. You can compromise on everything. And remember, if he's doing this for the sake of the good news of Jesus, then obviously the good news of Jesus, the content of that good news, can't be messed with either. You can't compromise on the truth of the gospel. So this is not an excuse for Christians to say, oh, we got to, in order to best reach the world, we've got to stop believing in the stuff that the world's thinks it's rubbish. Like, so we don't believe the Bible is the Word of God. We don't believe in miracles. We don't believe that Jesus is divine. And we don't believe that the biblical teaching about male, female, human sexuality is correct. No, no, no. You can't let go of the core of the gospel in order to serve the gospel, right? There are limitations. Paul is saying where the gospel is not compromised, though, where you're not going to fall into sin or lead others into sin, on these issues... You have a right to do otherwise, but think about giving up those rights, contextualizing, be all things to all people. I'll give you a, a fairly modern example. Um, a couple of hundred years ago, in the early 19th century, 1800s, China began to open up to the West, and missionaries flooded in. But how did the missionaries come? If you know a little bit about history at that time, it wasn't a good situation. They came in on the back of opium trade and gunboats. Now, these missionaries were obviously well-meaning, but the message that the Chinese people got and the way that these missionaries did their ministry sent the message that if you want to become a Christian, you need to become Western. Now, you add to that, that at this time, the West was eating away territories in China, bringing China to its knees. You can imagine what a disaster that was, why so few people became Christians. Now, there was one man who changed all of that. His name was James Hudson Taylor. And he saw that missionaries in China were mostly ineffective. They were well-meaning, but they were ineffective. Because what they would do is they would spend most of their time with English business people, 
all along the coastal port cities where these gunboats came and the opium trade was happening. And they would spend a lot of their times acting as what? Translators for diplomats. And that's what they do. All the while, the majority of Chinese who lived in the inland were simply not being reached. So Hudson Taylor and his missionaries that he raised up did something radical. They became Chinese in order to reach the Chinese. You can see that it was their policy. They were the first to really do it, to adopt Chinese dress, to learn the language, and to go inlands. And because of Hudson Taylor, modern missions was never the same after that. That's being all things to all people. Aren't you glad if you have a Chinese background? We owe it to that guy. We owe it to those people. Now, how do we try to apply this at SWEC, as a church? Well, we try to apply it at Fresh. Why are we doing Fresh? It's our way of putting on a program that is more contextualized because it's actually hard for some people to walk into this on a Sunday to know what's going on, to understand, picking up from the middle of 1 Corinthians 9. What am I? I don't even understand. I've never opened a Bible before. And you're expecting me to make a commitment to Jesus? Do you see what a big gap that is? So with Fresh, we try to remove the obstacles. We make it non-threatening. We give people time to ask questions, to investigate. We don't put the heavy pressure on, and we do it over a period of time. That's contextualization. Right? This is important. Now, this is all well and good. But I want to say that if all we're getting out of 1 Corinthians 9 is this ministry philosophy of contextualization, we're actually going to miss the heart of this passage. So I want to bring us back to that before we talk about the practicalities of contextualization. I want us never to miss the motivation because it's dripping through not just verses 19 and 23, but really the whole chapter, isn't it? Now, you know that um, the Thai cave that, was, that, that the, the uh, boys were rescued from? You know, that wasn't the first time divers have gone into the cave. Adventurers have sought to go in and have a look around. In fact, I reckon after this whole rescue, there's going to be a lot more people wanting to visit it. All right? But people are going to be diving or canyoning into those caves because they're hobbyists, because they're adventure seekers. But you can bet that while the rescue was going on, there were no hobby divers among them, were there? There were no people there just to have a look, just to have a go. Hobby adventurers. Only those who were willing to pay the ultimate price, and one person did, only those people would have been part of the rescue operation. Why? Because lives were at stake. And when something that important is at stake, all of the hobby divers go away and all the serious people have to take on the, the job. Why am I mentioning that? It's because if we only get out of 1 Corinthians 9 mission principles, we will only ever be hobby evangelists. You got that? And that's just not enough. I mean, you might be really good at apologetics, answering people's tough questions. You might be really good at contextualization, learning languages, but you'll just be a hobby evangelist. You won't really put your life on the line and make the sacrifices necessary if you miss the motivation if you're idly watching people headed to hell, and if that's not the thing that's deeply moving you, and that's what we need to come to. You might know that um, the drought in New South Wales and Queensland, they say, is the worst in living memory. And I remember the last time there was a significant drought, about 18, 20 years ago. But they're saying this is worse. In fact, I read something this morning that said this scientifically could be the worst drought in 400 years for our land. 
Farmers are having to kill all their livestock because there's no feed and they don't want to watch their poor sheep starve to death. People are going broke, not just farmers, but communities, businesses. There's one town that's got enough water till November, I think. Now, I don't know about you, but how, how long has it been since you were aware of how bad the drought is? For me, it was only a couple of weeks. But it's been going on for months and years, perhaps, if you want to total it all up. But definitely for the whole of this year, rainfall has been really, really bad. It's been going on for months, and I've only just become aware of it. All the while, these farmers are dying. Uh, sorry, their stock is dying. These farmers are starving, and they're running out of money, and they're suffering. And I'm not even aware of it until two weeks ago. Do you know, friends, there is a spiritual drought across the world And it is far more dire and more desperate than this drought. That billions of people are living life without God and therefore without real hope. Even as I speak this afternoon, these hour and a half that we're here, thousands will die. And every day that passes, millions will die and be propelled into a godless eternity. And they don't have a savior to cling on to who will save them. People are going to hell all around us. In our schools, our universities, our streets, our neighborhoods, our families. And sometimes I'm just not even aware that it's that desperate. Now just as an aside to... um, you, if you're not yet a Christian or follower of Jesus, the idea of hell might be really confronting, perhaps even offensive, and I understand that can be. It's not the time to do all the explanation, but a couple of things. Jesus spoke more about hell than anyone else, and yet Jesus exemplifies love, so it's not that love and hell can't go together. In fact, Jesus, because he loves us, died in order that we might be rescued from hell, right? So that's the good news of Jesus. And even if you don't believe in hell or find it difficult to swallow, do you know what? If, you, if you're here, then chances are you have a Christian friend or family member who are motivated by their love for you because they don't want to see you go to hell even if you don't believe in it, right? And that's why they want you to take this stuff seriously. So if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, come to Fresh. Find out more. You know, Ask those questions about hell. Right? But if you are a follower of Jesus... Uh, don't let this be the situation of I was in. I only realized two weeks ago that the drought was so bad. Don't close your eyes to the reality. Um, this morning uh, at, at the Kingsgrove Sunday School, Kerry and Heidi led um, the kids, a combined on, on just all the people groups in the world who are unreached. Unreached people groups means there's not even enough Christians to, to, to start a church. Right? And by church, I don't mean like this size. I mean, you know, even a family church. What was the largest people group that's unreached? Something like 30 million people, wasn't it? That's more than the population of Australia. That's just one people group. How can we idly sit by and when there are people groups like that? 30 million, another people group, 17 million, the Hui people in China. They just don't even have the gospel. See, my prayer is that we will make the one thing, the gospel, everything for us. See, contextualization, that is just the beginning. Making the one thing everything will change everything that we do. So let me give you some suggestions. Um, Firstly, family and friends. Your family and friends, my family and friends, 
who don't yet know Jesus, they are lost without Jesus. I mean, has that registered? That they're heading to an eternity without Jesus. And if we see that, then might we not see that the reason why you're in their life and God has chosen to save you, you might be the only follower of Jesus they really know. You're in their life for one reason, first and foremost. Other reasons are true too, but for one reason, first and foremost, that you might be able to share the hope of Jesus with them. Do you realize that? And sometimes I think that maybe our hearts have just grown cold or indifferent, or we're just so disappointed we keep asking and trying, they just don't respond, that we've stopped caring. Well, if that's the case, maybe today is just, hey, let's repent, yeah? Let's ask that God would help us burn with sorrow and passion to see them saved, our friends and our family. Now, how you reach them, when you do that, what's the wisest and most loving thing to do? How do you contextualize? Well, that's going to be different in different situations. Helpful to think that you are a missionary to them, even if they're family members. You are a missionary to them. So you've got to work out, how do I be all things to all people? Remove unnecessary barriers so that they might get the gospel to, the, to have the best hearing. Now, a good start is this. You're going to have to spend time with them, all right? Your family, your friends who aren't followers of Jesus. You're going to have to be in their world, sharing their lives. They're not going to know, they don't care how much you know unless they know how much you care. You're going to have to get to know their way of thinking. If you have non-Christian family members, if you never spend time with them, it's going to be really hard, isn't it? to share with them the hope that you have. If you have friends and colleagues and neighbors or people you study with, if you only relate to them on one dimension, that is, we work together, we study together, we are next-door neighbors, but you never move that beyond that one dimension to another dimension, you know what? When you invite them to church or fresh, they're probably going to say no. But if you've got more than a one-dimension relationship to them, you've hung out with them, you've invited them over for tea or whatever, then when you say, hey, come with me to this thing that we're doing at supper at church, they're more likely to say yes. You see what I mean? You've got you to increase your exposure and your friendship level with them beyond the one dimension that you know them. Now, that's going to take time. That's going to take energy. You're going to have to sacrifice your own priorities and comforts. But that's what it means to be all things to all people. What about work and ambition? The one thing should put what we're doing now on a Monday even, into perspective. Really, really helpful and important to remember. Your study, your work, whether you're paid for work or you're working at home, from home, um, full-time mom, that's all work. They're important. That's part of your worship. That's part of your spiritual dimension of your life. But remember, as important as those things are, eternity is just around the corner, all right? And the Bible says there is a new kind of work, what it calls the work of the Lord, that all followers of Jesus, and it doesn't matter how old you are, it can be my daughter's age, Bethany's age, as long as you're a follower of Jesus, you are all to be engaged in. The work of the Lord is what? It's the work of seeing people saved and seeing people mature as followers of Jesus. That's the work of the Lord, is what our church is on about, making, maturing, mobilizing, multiplying disciples. And so I want to say, if you get the one thing, then your studies and your work and even your unemployment and even your retirement needs to take second place to that. In fact, have you ever thought about how your work and everything else, your stage of life can actually serve that? What I'm asking you to do is 
Think about how you can bring your talents, your gifts, your opportunities. Some of it might even be professional opportunities, like it is for someone like Leanne. But your money, your time, all that your study, work, retirement, whatever stage of life affords, and be willing to bring them all for the work of the Lord. Have you ever thought of that? Because you can. Now, what's it going to look like? What's it going to be different in different situations? I'm just going to throw out a few names. I'm not going to embarrass anyone here because I'm just going to name brothers and sisters from my Kingsgrove congregation, but some of you might know them. So I, I see Faye. Some of you will know Auntie Faye. Uh, she volunteers hours every single week, right? Pouring her accounting skills into serving our church. She does not just all the bookkeeping, she does all the reconciliation, all the financials, all the annual reports and all that kind of stuff, the balance sheet, stuff that I don't understand. It's hours of work for her every single week. She does it for free. Uni student Anthony, he fills his time while he's at uni, not just studying, and he's doing great at uni, but he knows he's got more time at uni than he has any other time in his life. So he's faculty leading at his uh, Christian group at uni. He's serving on conferences. He's leading our youth group. He's exploring mission work. So he's going to go to reach out conference. He even went on another mission conference just in the last uni break, making the most of his opportunities. Elaine, let me talk about Elaine. Elaine um, only works part-time in her own business. So every second Friday night, she invites non-Christian moms that she's met through school with her kids and invites them and their kids over to her place so that she can share the gospel with them and teach the kids the Bible every fortnight. I also know a bunch of singles and empty nesters from both congregations, actually. And they're giving huge amounts of money to the work of the gospel because, well, being single or empty nesters, they don't have the kind of financial responsibilities they used to have or they would have if they were married with kids. And they've learned to live with less, and so they give more. And really encouraging around rice rally season, I see high schoolers. You know, high school, while you're in high school, you have relationships you'll never have in your life. You don't just have relationships with one or two people, you have relationships with whole groups, right? And so I see high schoolers not ask one, but groups, sometimes whole classrooms of friends to come and hear the gospel at Rice Rally. And they're not afraid to stick up their necks for Jesus. And they're not afraid to say, I'm a Christian. And they're not afraid to rally people to come and hear about Jesus in droves. That's what I'm seeing. And I'm wondering if you're willing to make the work of the Lord your one thing. No matter what you do, Monday to Friday, what else you do. Make this the one most important thing that you will study for, that you will work for, that you will save money for, that you will spend your free time on, that you will even retire for. Let me end with this. Hudson Taylor said, China is not to be won for Christ by quiet, ease-loving men and women. The stamp of men and women we need is such as will put Jesus, China, and souls first and foremost in everything and at every time. Even life itself must be secondary. Switch China to whatever you want. Bankstown, the Southwest, Australia. Same thing goes. Let's pray. Father, we pray that right now you would, by your Spirit, make the one thing that you are passionate about, the one thing that you gave your son for, make that our one thing. In Jesus' name, amen.